I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as slashers, vampires, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. All right, so here we are with uh, episode six, and we're getting into Eli Roth now, right? Yeah, yeah, we're going to complete our cycle of subgenre, franchise, director, right? So right. we're going to do Eli Roth this week because he's doing the history of horror, so he's kind of relevant. Yep. I mean, his last movie was a kid's horror movie, but, you know, I got to watch that with my kids. So I can't wait to get to that. After this, then we're going to start back over with a category again and just kind of go into it until we, I guess, run out of shit to make in that order. I really feel like Eli Roth is going to be kind of fun to dive into for both of us. Because before recording this episode, neither one of us was really a fan of Eli Roth. No, not really. I mean, my my wife loves him to death, and I was one of those people that just didn't get it. Right. Like, I remembered liking Cabin Fever in theaters, and I saw it a bunch. The other movies were kind of one-offs for me. However, I fucking love the guy himself. Yeah. Like, Eli Roth's history of horror is awesome, and I've never seen him on an interview or red carpet thing where he's talking about one of his own movies or somebody else's movie that I didn't agree with everything the guy said. Yeah. It, it seems like a, a straight up cool dude that really, really enjoys what he's doing. Right. And I never really got into the torture porn subgenre. And in my head, I was just thinking about how bad and graphic these movies were. And then I went back and watched them and they're not. No, not as a whole, especially the, all the stuff around hostile. Um, yeah. Hostel's really not that bad. I even watched the director's cut, which was worse. And there's still lots of cutaways and shit like that. Yeah. You don't, I don't, I think with him, you really don't get into anything crazy until the green inferno. Yeah. And that one was uncomfortable for me to watch. So <laughs> <laughs> it'll be fun when we get to that one. I think when we do these directors bodies of work, like I want to just do directors credits. I don't want to do yeah. uh writing only. I definitely don't want to do producer only. Yeah. And this is a real good one to mention this on because we're very, very well aware that Eli Roth does a lot of stuff, uh, you know, aside from directing as far as writing, producing, executive producing and acting, acting. the bears. Exactly. There's going to be quote unquote Eli Roth stuff that's not talked about and stuff outside of the horror genre, of course, that's not talked about. But we're, we're a aware. horror podcast. So, yeah, we're sticking know. with the director point of view here. And I do think it's interesting, though, I was looking every movie on this list out of all of his horror movies he wrote, except for one of them. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, uh, I mean, I guess the guy does it anyways. I saw in an interview, he said that he thinks directing, writing, producing is the way to go because you don't have to like fulfill or satisfy anybody else's dream and you just do your own thing. And that's the only way to make your own real movie. So I thought that was interesting. Exactly. That brings me back to what I was bringing up um, when we were talking about Sam Raimi and what can happen and what magic can happen when you've got somebody with a good idea in control. Right. And I was looking a little bit on his background and his backstory. Yeah. He's born in Massachusetts in 72. So he's 10 years older than us. Okay. But if you think about that, like a lot of your horror you got from me early on anyway, yeah. it's not in the later years. And my sister's 11 years older than me. So I got into it from her and my mom a good bit. Plus you lived out in the boonies and you only had like PBS and shit. So it was like 10 years behind anyways. Yeah, we still movies. don't have cell phones out there. It's right, right? <laughs> so if you think about it, we were kind of like a decade older in our viewing habits. Yeah. So I feel like that's, Kind of like why we have a lot of similar uh, views and points on, on movies that he does. Most definitely. So not necessarily in the way he made movies. So he saw Alien at the age of eight, and it immediately made him want to get into making horror films. So he started making short films, I think, with like a Super 8 home camera. Dude, right? if I saw that at the age of eight, I'd be terrified. I mean, dude, I saw Halloween and <laughs> shit at like five or six. So. Dude, the, the little chomp-chomp mouth thing always got to me. I remember seeing Alien early, but I don't remember how early on. But like he, he saw that, he's like, I love horror movies, I want to be a director, and he started using ketchup and shit for fake blood, which I feel like so many of us did when we were kids, you know, even just doing pranks and stuff. Yeah. But that's kind of where it started for him. I know he made a bunch of short films in high school, right? Yeah, and a, a lot like the, the whole Sam Raimi thing yeah. again, him and his friends, 8mm movies, shorts. I see a lot, like in between the two of them, you know, sometimes. Oh, um, yeah. 
he didn't have his own three stooges team, but you know. <laughs> but then he went to NYU. I think he graduated like Kuma Sumlad, right? It was something like that. Like, I know but, he didn't drop out. He's not one of them film school dropouts. He did actually make right, it through. Right. And he actually wrote his first movie, Cabin Fever, with his roommate, at least the original part of it yeah. when he was in college. I read that he worked various jobs in movie theaters and in production companies just doing anything he could, like gaffer, grip, anything. Yeah, exactly. Anything to at least be in the industry and start getting exposed to stuff and wait for an opportunity. Right. And he like finished writing Cabin Fever and worked on getting the funding to get the movie made when he was actually like a production assistant on Howard Stern's private parts and his yep. only job was to sit outside of his dressing room and wake Howard Stern up when they needed him to shoot. Wow. I mean, that's an important job, but wow, it's a cushy job. Right. Well, it gave him plenty of time to touch up uh, his first movie. He said in a few interviews that he decided to get in a horror film for two primary reasons. One was he loves horror movies, which is alien. Got him started, right? Yeah. And the other, most of his favorite directors like Toby Hooper, Sam Raimi, Wes Craven, Peter Jackson, they all made horror movies first, which some of these are obvious, like Wes Craven and Sam Raimi, but a lot of people don't know Peter Jackson I mean, what did he make? He made Bad Taste. Yep. Dead, Dead Alive, Alive, which is also called Brain Dead, depending on where you live. And then the Frighteners. Frighteners. And then like uh, Heavenly Creatures was in there. That was his break coming after uh, Dead Alive. Oh, um, I remember bringing that movie over and making you and uh, you and Seifer. I made it, you guys watch it. Like, yep. You guys got to see this fucking movie. And I think you guys are expecting a full on horror movie like I was the first time I saw it. Yeah. And then you just kind of you go into it. It's a good movie. Yeah, it's oddball. We'll, we'll definitely be talking about Peter Jackson later. I know I said earlier that his movies are not as gory as they were in my head and as people make them out to be. But there was a theme I noticed when I was watching his films, and I really think this is a credit to Eli Roth. The movies have lots of cutaways and are not as gory as people say, but the scenarios are fucking terrifying scenarios. And I'm more uncomfortable in the scenario than I am with the gore. Yep. And I feel like maybe the way he makes the movies, they're so terrifying that it makes your brain fill in the blanks. I think that's a real good thing to point out here, um, especially when we get into some of his later movies. Well, it's still early movies, but when we get into him here in a minute, it's like you said about Saul. When people were saying, well, even going back to Halloween, when people were saying, oh, this was a bloodbath. And then when people saw Saul and they're like, oh, this is the most horrific thing you're ever going to view in theaters. And it's not what was on screen. It was what was implied. It was the, the atmosphere and the thoughts. Uh, it's like going back to with what you said about Hush. You know, you've got this this disabled girl and, and how how crazy that situation is and even over the top. And that's what I think really happened to people on his movies here is that it wasn't overtly gory or overtly crazy it's that atmosphere and that situation and be thinking about being there and that's totally above and beyond what the gore factor was right and i'm not saying there's not uncomfortable gore in these movies all of them have at least one scene that will fuck you up in one way or another some movies i go back because i hadn't seen them yet and people are like oh it's so gory but i actually saw hostile and cabin fever and everything when they first came out and then i go back and watch them i'm like but i i myself remember them being worse than this no and I am a horror fan, you know? Yeah, see, and I didn't watch uh, Cabin Fever back in the day, but I did see Hostel in theaters amid all the media hype. And I remember walking out of there and being like, what the hell were they talking about? I think a, I think a horror fan versus an average Joe is, right. is a big deal there as well. But that's what I was saying. Like, it speaks volumes to me about Hostel because I saw it as a horror fan and then remembered it differently. Right. So, so it even worked there. Yeah. So it even worked on me there. His first horror movie was Cabin Fever in 02. I think he made a couple of like small shorts that were like animated and shit, but this was his yeah. first like feature length movie and horror movie. Like I said, he wrote it with his college roommate. He was heavily influenced by Evil Dead. That's why they end up in a creepy cabin the whole time. And he actually was at a family member's friend's farm in Iceland, like cleaning hay and shit, right? Like I read yep. that and he got scratched by the hay and he got a bad skin infection. Yep. 
So he knew about having like some skin infection that nobody knew about and how bad it affected him. And I'm sure it traumatized him in some way to make this movie. And then you just kind of throw Evil Dead in with that and you're, you're good to go, right? Yeah, he actually, he talked about the, uh, the thinking his neck was just itching and shaving and literally shaving his skin off. And that's why that ended up being one of the scenes in the movie with the girl shaving her legs. Yeah, I forgot about that. I remember reading that too. I was like, oh, because that's one of the scenes in the movie that kind of gets me. Yep. Eli Roth felt that the horror genre was kind of like fucked when he made this movie because a lot of movies were saying to make a horror movie, you have to do it like Scream and you have to have this young cast and you have to, you know, self-reference your own genre. And he felt like that dated everything. And, you know, Wes Craven did it perfectly with Scream and it'll last the test of time on that one. But everything ripping it off was just getting fucking terrible and stale. Yeah. And then you had movies coming out like Sixth Sense that he said was like the scariest fucking movie he'd ever seen in his life. And they're calling it a psychological thriller. And he goes, that make Exorcist a theological thriller? <laughs> you know, like, I'm quoting Eli Roth here. But, you know, he's like horror movies weren't being taken seriously. They weren't getting credit because the good horror movies were being credited as something else and not horror. So you yeah. know, credit wasn't getting paid where it was due. And, you know, so he wanted to make something truly fucking terrifying and, you know, no holds bar and just dive in. And I think he self-funded the whole movie, right? Um, like was, self-gather. He didn't get it from a studio, right? Well, I know um, there's there was going out and, and getting investors involved. His father cashed out like all his stocks and put that money into it. It was a lot like Evil Dead. Even once the movie was in production, they were taking what they had. He, he said he had a 10 minute highlight reel that he was literally having to take to people to keep getting money to keep making the movie. It, okay. was, it was a fight to keep the movie going. There was even $400,000 in deferred payment to him and other crew members that was going to have to come after the fact, you know, like, believe in me, guys, we're making a movie. I'm not getting paid. You're not getting paid, but we're going to make the movie. It's OK. Interestingly enough, uh, I read that he didn't even plan on on making the movie himself. His original plan was to sell the script to a studio for them to make it. And it six years went by and he couldn't get that done. Oh, okay. So he ended up, I'm, I got to fucking make it myself. Yeah. I mean, when this movie came out, it was so well received and so well loved that even prominent directors were gushing over it and talking about it. Peter Jackson, like we said, it's funny because Eli Roth is a Peter Jackson fan, but Peter Jackson was in New Zealand making Return of the King and he kept hearing about Cabin Fever. So he's like, somebody's got to fucking send me a copy of this thing. <laughs> and he watched it on set, you know, I guess after filming one day, loved the movie so much, he shut production down two days to make the entire cast and crew watch Cabin Fever. And then he invited Eli Roth. I couldn't find out if Eli Roth actually made it to New Zealand or not, but he invited him. He's like, I want you to come hang out on set, see how shit's going. And I'll even give you some promotional material to put on the posters and shit to, to help get the movie out. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. And uh, hold on. I actually have the quote here. Brilliant, fantastic horror fans have been waiting years for a movie like Cabin Fever. I loved it. And they actually use that like on the posters and commercials because okay. Peter Jackson loved it. Quentin Tarantino also loved the movie and he was quoted saying that Eli Roth was the future of horror and yeah. he would actually have Eli Roth come over to his house. Cause you know, I've always heard about Quentin Tarantino's uh, movie theater room that him and Robert Rodriguez watch movies in. Yeah. Right. So you'd have him come over there and, and watch movies with him. He was like, what are you working on next? What are you going to do next? And he started telling him about hostile. Yeah. And Quentin Tarantino was like, you got to go fucking home and, and write this. And then he'd bring it back over in pieces. Yep. And uh, yeah, they, they really became out. friends through all that. Yeah. And I mean, Hostel is Quentin Tarantino presents. We'll get to that when we get to Hostel. Yeah. Let me give you guys a, a brief summary of the movie in case you haven't seen it. The movie has an 80s vibe to it, even though I don't think it's in the 80s. I just I think he wanted you to get that. It's got the throwback feel. Yeah, it's got that throwback feel. And it starts off. You got like a hobo or a hermit walking through the woods and he's looking for his dog and he finds his dog and he tries to move him. And the body's just kind of, I guess, liquefied or oozy. Right. Yeah. 
and he goes off running and I pretty much immediately well, he, goes, he goes to lift it up and it like splurts in his face. Oh yeah, it's pretty gross. So he gets like, you know, this DNA on him, which is gonna keep popping up in the movie. And then you cut to like a group of college kids and they're really they're all fucking assholes. Yeah, you don't like any of them. Like you see one of the girls just like yelling some some crazy shit and the camera pulls out and she's yelling at a child. Right. <laughs> and yeah. I don't think we're meant to to like the cast. The only one I recognized was the main guy Paul in the movie. He was in Boy Meets World. Yeah. Like what's his the, name? The older brother, Ryder Strong. Yeah, something like the Ryder Strong. Yeah. And actually, I didn't like him in the movie. I thought he was too whiny sounding the whole time, like to be the main character. He was, but there's some parallels between this and another movie with that well, what's character. The parallel? So, I mean, as, as you go through the movie, not not trying to jump ahead here, is to quote what you said about um, Ash in Evil Dead is he's the mousy character who throughout the movie you don't think is going to be the the strong guy at the end and he goes to the same thing he has to end up being the hero who saves no one uh, right right <laughs> and uh, i guess there's gonna be some spoilers in this because there's we're not going over any whodunits a lot of these movies you're just kind of watching them for shock factor anyways yeah but these these college kids they end up at a general store like definitely in the country lots of funny dialogue here like you know what's in this jar Oh, that's fox piss. What's it for? It's for the foxes. What's the kid's name? Dennis. Dennis. He gets bit and he's like, you should put a sign next. Everybody knows not to sit next to Dennis. Yeah, there's this crazy looking blonde headed kid sitting on a porch swing right when they pull up and really looks like one of the kids from Village of the Damned. Yeah. Like the blonde hair and the blue eyes and the shitty haircut. Yeah. And there's this crazy like kung fu scene, right? Where he gets up and he's like flipping, doing that, moves. That's when he goes back, though, after the later on yeah, when yeah. he's looking for a doctor but this kid's just weird like it really sets the tone like what the fuck's going on in this yeah. country store and this this group of kids there's there's five of them right so there's paul and then karen which is jordan lad she pops up in some other eli roth movies no jeff which he was one of the stoners and um i don't know his real name but he was in super troopers can't pull over oh, any yeah. further man so you got jeff marcy paul karen and then bert bert's kind of like the the third wheel, I guess he's the fifth wheel in this case. And he's yeah. just like, he's just there to get drunk and have a good time. Exactly. They stock up on beer. They get in the Jeep. They go to the cabin and it's a little kind of rundown. And you definitely get this like showing up at the evil dead. cabin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You get, you get that same shot. Now, now it's way brighter, but you right, do get right. the same shot. They go in the cabin. They decide to kind of go their own ways. So Paul and Kieran, you know, they're going swimming at the lake. Jeff and Marcy are immediately jumping into fucking, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, they're like, you, you guys, you know, go do your thing. And Bert's just going to get drunk and he's got a rifle and he's going to go hunt squirrels. Exactly. Right? Like, and drink booze. I think they're drinking uh, arrogant bastard ale. Like, that shit will fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually read there was supposed to be more character development with Jeff and Marcy. I think it was filmed and hit the cutting room floor. But they were supposed to regularly, like, have sex and then have very abusive relationships, like, physically and mentally okay. with each other. And then just show, like, kind of a cycle of, like, how fucked up those two are. Yeah, I got that vibe anyway. They hate each other. They just, they're just there to fuck each other. Right, right. You cut to the lake and you see uh, Paul and Karen and they're floating on a raft. And, you know, she's talking about, have you ever wanted to kiss somebody before to see if they're a good kisser? And you get this vibe that they're childhood friends, right? Yeah, lifelong friends. And and you can tell real quick that he's he's pined over her for forever, never had the balls right. to do anything. And it just kind of cuts back and forth between them hanging out, Jeff and Marcy fucking don't get me started on flipping him over in the fingers <laughs> <laughs> and Bert hunting. And then Bert stumbles across the hermit from the beginning, yep. but he looks like the, a fucking Walker. Like he's got like bulls and shit <laughs> on his face. He's fucked up. And obviously he's infected. And, uh, I think did Bert shoot him by accident. That's how it starts off. Bert's shooting and you hear, Oh, you got me. Yeah, Cause something. he's like down in the Creek or something like yeah. that. When he shoots and he him. stands up and he sees how fucked up he is. And Bert's just like, stay away from me. Yeah. Like, don't come near me. He, he already, I mean, Honestly, he's the smart one in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> For being the dumbass, he's the smart one. And he shoots at the ground and tells the guy to fuck off and he runs away. And I know he started a campfire and 
Jeff and Marcy find it and they start calling him an idiot, which is kind of funny. They regularly refer to him as the idiot, but he's the one that keeps his head together a lot to save their asses. Yeah, he's the only one that tries to keep it going along from that angle. No, this is bad. Let's get away from this. Let's go find a doctor. Let's get the truck working. All all that shit. And then it shows them just doing normal, like adolescent college horror movie shit in the cabin, like hanging out, drinking, eating, telling stories. He shows up at the door. And he recognizes Bert, and they don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. And he's trying to get in, and they all get weapons. Like, I remember there's a baseball bat. Bert's got the squirrel hunting rifle. They get a kitchen knife that has to be whatever brand one they use in Halloween, because it's the same <laughs> handle that's that absurd, like, fucking katana-length kitchen knife. Yeah. And they go after the guy, and they're trying to scare him off, and he's, like, in their truck, and he's, like, puking everywhere and bleeding everywhere. Yep. They hairspray lighter, catch him on fire, right? Yep. And that's when you end up seeing his dead body in the lake, and the camera pans out. It says Reservoir. So you know the water's infected, and it follows the pipes along to the cabin, and Karen gets a glass of water. And that's when you know they're they're all going to start getting fucked here. Yeah. But Karen starts to get really sick. They kind of figure out what's going on. The guy was sick. They're like, now you have it. They end up having to, like, there's blood all over the bathroom, so they, and she's getting really bad, right? Because yeah. they check her the next morning. There's that whole gross, you know, pre-sex scene. Yeah. They're, and they're, well, I really hate this, man, because I was watching an interview where on set they had they had a funny name for that scene when they were shooting it, kind of like the whole eyeball flyball thing in Evil Dead 2. I don't remember the name of it, but it was it was supposed to be a very important piece. Like there was a, the piano piece was written specifically for that. <laughs> like you're supposed to really be into this love scene and then it takes a real dark turn. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I don't just just watch <laughs> yeah. it if you hadn't seen it. If you don't remember what we're talking about, you'll remember it real quick when you see it. But she gets bad, and Bert decides, it's Bert again. He's like, we got to quarantine her. Yeah. And they go lock her out in the shed, which this is very reminiscent of The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. Right? You see lots of throwbacks to Eli Roth's well, and, and it's still Evil Dead, too, because it's like the tool shed that's sitting there next to the cabin. Right, right. It's conveniently right there. Right, right. So you got the tool shed from the Evil Dead cabin, but the quarantine from The from Thing. The thing. And uh, it's really funny, because Karen immediately gets real bitchy about the whole thing. I know that if we had just seen a sick guy... And then my skin was melting and I was deathly ill. I'd want to get away from my friends. Oh, yeah. She did not, though. She, she was mad at yeah. him. And I'm trying to think of how it spreads from there. I know they shot the truck and shit trying to stop the guy from getting yeah. away. So Bert's having to clean up the puke and blood in the truck. And he's trying to um, fix the truck so they can get out of there. Their cell phones don't work, of course. Yep. Uh, I know they go hiking through the woods. I think it's Jeff and, and Bert that do. Yeah, they go to whatever the closest house is. And it's pretty far away, and they find this lady, and she's, like, chopping pigs up, and she's talking about how they're all fucking infected with some disease, and they yeah. can't eat or sell them. And they want to use the radio, and she's kind of mean, and then they say they don't know somebody. I was a little confused, but it's kind of funny. She's like, oh, if you don't know that asshole, then you can come in. Yeah. To call the mechanic, and then they start seeing pictures in the house, and it's the hermit. Yep. So they realize they've killed somebody related to her. So like, oh, we got to go, which is dumb. It still should just use the fucking radio. Yeah, just keep point. your mouth shut and get some help. I'm trying to think how it gets spread from there. I know when they're partying the night before, Bert says something about how he's going to drink just beer the whole thing. Yep. And Jeff's like, I could do that, but you couldn't. And that kind of pops up because Jeff ends up just drinking beer. Exactly. And he doesn't touch the water. How does Bert end up getting it? I don't remember. Bert um, and Marcy get it. And it might be from taking care of Karen, but Karen progressively gets worse yeah, in she, the shed. She gets she gets rough. <laughs> Jeff ends up saying, fuck everybody, and takes a case of arrogant bastard ale and runs off into the fucking woods, yep. holding a handkerchief or something over his mouth so he can't breathe. It was like, she's fucking dying, and you keep breathing on her, or whatever <laughs> he says, and goes running off. And and Bert gets the uh, truck running, but he starts coughing up blood, and I guess he goes away to go to the store to get help. And I'm, I'm kind of jumping around a bit, but it all ends up the same. Yeah. 
Marcy ends up giving this whole speech about a plane going down and you just got to fuck somebody in the room, right? And she's like all depressed. Oh, yeah. I read that that was actually the casting for this movie was done on 9-11. Oh, that's fucked up. And they couldn't cancel it because they couldn't get the word out in time and the airlines, people couldn't leave and shit. Yeah. The line that you had to read for the role as Marcy was the plane going down line. At least she was talking about fucking while the plane was going right. down so and they, not they just, a plane hitting the building. So they just go ahead and do that. So Marcy and Paul really have this oddly thrown in sex scene, right? And, yeah, because she thinks she's going to die. And Yeah, so, I mean, it, it makes sense with her speech, but it's just kind of awkward. I don't know, something about him, maybe it's because of Boy Meets World. It was just awkward to me. Eh, I'm with you. But they're having that. sex, and he scrapes her back, right? Yep. It's funny because he asked her if they should use protection, or does she have any protection? She's like, don't worry, I'm healthy. Yeah. And you're like, you know that they're... That's going on there. Yep. And then I guess like after the sex scene, he was really worried about his dick having bad breath or something. He, was, <laughs> <laughs> he pours Listerine all over his dick. Like it's going to fucking clean off this disease. Oh, right? damn. So, you know, it spread from there and, and Marcy ends up like by herself and taking a bath. And that's where you get the shaving scene. Yep. That's probably the grossest scene in the movie to me. What's interesting is, you know, there's a lot of this that's taken from our point of view, a lot that's taken from uh, evil dead. And, but there's a lot more comedy sprinkled in it more like, you know, the latter half of evil dead two or something like that. But that, that particular scene, even the scene we talked about earlier that we don't want to spoil doesn't feel that dramatic. It's more comedic, but by the time you get to her shaving her legs yeah. and it's like, it's really weird. Cause she's like so heartbroken that she knows she has it too. And she's like, I'm still pretty. I'm yeah, still, I yeah. mean, she's not saying it, but you know, it's, it, there's hunks of skin coming off bull. And then yeah. it cuts around and you can see the handprints already infected and bulls on her back. Yep. And Bird ends up making it to town, and that's when Dennis, the kid, does all these fucking kung fu flips, which is so weird and out of place. But I saw an interview with Eli Roth, and he said that, you know, that kid came in to read for the part, and he was, like, very professional and very much. He was, like, a homeschooled kid, right? So they kind of had those mannerisms where his parents told him to be super polite. And he's like, well, tell me about yourself. And he's like, I'm a black belt in karate or something. And he's like, no shit. And he's like, well, show me something. And he said, the kid just started doing like matrix flip kicks and shit. Yep. And he's like, oh my God, in my head, I'm rewriting this fucking part of the movie. Cause Dennis is going to do Kung Fu now. So, so, you know, you see him doing all these flip kicks and shit and he ends up biting Bert who he knows is infected. Yeah. I have to spoil this though. And while the Kung Fu is going on, there's now a sign on the porch that says, don't sit next to Dennis. Yeah. yeah Cause at the beginning, <laughs> they're like, everybody knows not sit next to Dennis. So he bites him. He gets infected in the store owner knows that they're all sick he can tell Bert's sick and Bert's like my friend's sick he's like now you done infected dennis Bert has to whole ass he gets in the truck and takes off yeah and the store owner who's dennis's dad yells for help and he says go get the kit yeah okay and the kit is this little fucking box that one of the rednecks is running around with the whole time i did so much research on the internet he has never said what the kit is yeah and i was i was looking at that too it's like the fucking briefcase in pulp fiction exactly and i wonder Pulp Fiction, yeah. Pulp Fiction had to have been before this. Wasn't that 90s? 96, yeah, yeah, it was 97. 90s. So it had to have been a throwback to Pulp Fiction, but I really wish you'd say what the kid is. But these three hillbillies end up, or rednecks, end up chasing down Bert and shooting at him a lot. Yep. And one of them is running around trying to protect this cigar box. I'm trying to remember, Jeff ends up leaving. Oh, we haven't even talked about the dog. Like when they're partying yeah. the first night, Eli Roth actually walks up with the dog and his name's Grim and he's like a pro skater. Yeah. He's got the really good weed. Yeah, he's got the really good weed, so he ended up hanging out with him. Well, he has this dog with him, and it was a pretty important part of the script. And Eli Roth was like, what dog can we get? And there's some Patrick Swayze movie with a dog. Is it called Black Dog or something? Um, where he's the truck driver? Yeah. The, okay. So yeah, he Black gets dog. that dog for the movie. 
and he's like so excited because oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was it, the nicest dog ever. Well, it's old. He was like yeah. old as shit. He kept sleeping, and they're like they're trying to film scenes, and they're like you know growl. And he's like Ur. you know something like that. And Eli Roth is like, what the fuck? So they decide not to use this famous dog, and somebody's like, oh, I know a guy with a dog, and it ends up being like a police attack dog. Yeah, they had to like get everyone offset. <laughs> they had to use a remote control camera to film the scenes because the dog was so fucking vicious that like when people got nearby, he'd attack them. So like they have to make it look like he's chasing people that's not there and then use it. And like everybody would go hide behind trucks and they'd send a remote control camera behind to chase the dog. Oh, it's so fucking vicious. But that's the same dog. Like Eli Roth had to use that one to walk up to the camp scene and like it attacked him. Oh. Like it jumped on him and he had to get it off of him when they started filming. And no they were, shit. Yeah, and they were trying to calm the dog down, and it's trained in Dutch, so they're yelling shit in Dutch the whole time. <laughs> and he was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to – whatever the dog does, I'm going to go with it. So, like, when he's tying it down, it was actually like a crazy dog. But that dog keeps showing up in the movie, barking and attacking, growling at him, and it's like he can sense the virus, I kind of felt like. They yeah, were and, you get, that. You, and you get, like, the dog vision with the dog running. And um, it's in red, and that's like the poster. Like, yeah. that's what the poster was. But the Marcy ends up going to check on Karen and the fucking dog mauls her and rips her apart. Right. Yeah. And then it gets into the room of Karen and chews her up. And Paul ends up having to come back and mercy kill Karen because like her face is eaten. The, the fucking special effects were top notch. Yeah, it looks so oh, good. By the special time effects. K&B Studios. Oh, yeah. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, he loved Evil Dead. He got K&B in there. So now who do you have left? Jeff's still missing. Bert is running from the rednecks. Yeah. And uh, Paul's alive. And somehow Bert and Paul end up back together and Bert's fucked. Like he knows he's dying. Yeah. And uh, they end up having a confrontation, which is a pretty cool shootout with the rednecks. And yeah. one of the guys is really trying to get that kid open. So I want to know what the fuck's in the kit. Yeah. Bert gets shot. They kill the rednecks. There was a weird cop that showed up earlier in the movie. And it's actually one of the kids from Detroit Rock City. And he looks like a kid from Detroit Rock City. Yeah. Stank stash and all. Oh, you're the party man, huh? And he's like riding a bike. Yeah. A bicycle. Yeah, not a motorcycle. He's riding an actual bicycle. So I'm trying to remember how Paul ends up in a hospital somehow. Well, he he ends up, uh, he runs off and stumbles upon the party some other kids are having that the cop's at. Yeah, the cop's cops drinking on the drink. Yeah, to check check on the party. It's really funny because it's like when the hermit walks up and they're like, fuck off. Everybody's doing that to him now. Yeah, because he's covered in blood to the point of once again looking like Ash. But the same thing. You guys got to help me. And everybody's like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. And he ends up in the hospital and they figure out he's got some illness. They don't know how to cure it. This, this, and that. And the cop basically, you get some old school justice sound out of his voice. He's like, we'll take care of it. Yeah. Right. Bert's dead from the gunshot. Paul ends up climbing out of some bushes the next day. He fucking made it. He's not sick. Right. Because he lived off a of beer. No water. He said he could do it. Exactly. He goes to the cabin and he finds everybody fucking dead. And he looks like he's going to be sad, but he's kind of like the douche in the movie. And he starts screaming and fist pumping. I made it. I fucking made it. Yep. And then he walks outside and gets lit up by the police and shot to death. Yeah. And that is straight up from the original Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Right? Like he's the only survivor. He comes out of the basement. Yep. And they shoot him. I know we're kind of going to this movie a lot, but there's there's a lot to this movie, unlike I feel some of the future movies. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and that's the thing. It's really important to go go through this one in details because this movie really, really it paid homage to a lot of stuff. It shows exactly where Eli Roth's 
frame of mind was right. and how much he loves horror in, in general. And this is the most like straight horror movie of his to yes. me too. You end up seeing that the lake's infected, not not the reservoir, but the actual lake's infected. Yep. I, I guess we spooled enough shit. Fucking Paul's body's in there. The sheriff had his body dumped, right? Yeah. Um, They murdered him. And some kids are getting water and they have a lemonade stand. And like there's banjos playing. The whole town's hanging out in front of the store drinking the lemonade. So yep. you're like, oh, the town's fucked now. And then you see this 18-wheeler pull off. Come driving by, yeah. And it's pulling out from behind the general store, and it's spring water from that lake that's yep. bottled and sold everywhere. So then you know that it's it's going to be a much, much bigger infection. But this was a really fun, gory horror cabin movie. And there was just, like, so much fun shit that happened in this movie. And, like, there were lots of throwbacks, like we said, because Paul, when he's fighting the hillbillies, there's a screwdriver in the ear. Yep. That's Dawn of the Dead, like, straight up. Karen in the Shed was the thing. Oh, Marcy gets up, starts walking, and you got the booty cam. You got the butt shot. And it is scene for scene, fucking the way Toby Hooper did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And then, like I said, Night of the Living Dead. So, like, it's really cool. And I'm sure there's more that I didn't catch watching it. But you can tell he's like, I'm making a horror movie, and I'm putting this shit in there. You know? And you you got that Evil Dead vibe. And you got, like, everybody acted like that movie was so gross. And it, it had some gore in it, but it was just fucking, it was very appropriate, I thought. I think the idea of the flesh eating bacteria and, you know, it's in the water. It's not a thing that you can defend from. It's just going to show up and you're fucked. Right, right. And that was the whole idea he had with what had happened to him. Not, you know, not only on the the horse farm in his travels, like contracting Jardia and some other stuff like like Eli Roth had been through some medical problems he's growing seen some up. shit. <laughs> and uh, that's what he's putting in there. And it's a really cool angle to, to put it on, you know, put people in an environment where. It's not over the top gore that's right. That, that's, you know, oh, you might get your head chopped off. And it's like, oh, no, you're just going to rot away. How much worse is that? Right, right. And he made this movie and the movie. It it did well. I mean, I might even I might even have some numbers here. Like he made it for other some deferred cash, but the budget was like one and a half million and it made 30 million. Yeah, right. So that, that's that's a, I that's mean, a block. Just looking at the ratio of that, that's blockbuster numbers. Yeah. yeah. So he made that and he pretty much had. He could do whatever the fuck he wanted. And like I said, he got to hang out with Quentin Tarantino, told him about Hostel, his idea for Hostel. Quentin Tarantino helped with that. They got Scott Spiegel, right? Yep. Came in and touched it up, and he did one of the Evil Deads. Yes. Well, he he co-wrote Evil Dead 2. Him and Scott Spiegel actually set up Raw Nerve Productions for uh, both the Hostel movies. And what was interesting was mainly the Quentin Tarantino thing. Yeah. Because he was talking with Tarantino, uh, and this had to be dark web shit. Yeah. And it was two main things, a Taiwanese $10,000 murder thing, where people would put themselves up to be snuffed, and their family would get ten, get the 10 grand. Right. You always heard, like, urban legends about that shit, like, especially in the early days of the internet. Well, yeah. I guess early 2000s, that was kind of the early days of the internet, right? Exactly. And we had the other big thing being the uh, some other website where you paid X amount of money to remote control a gun and, and kill a lion. Right. And, like, you know, elite hunting type thing. I mean, I remember, like, 99, 2000, the few people you knew with internet, like, snuff videos would pop up, and you were always like, are these real? Yeah. You know what I mean? And Obviously, they're fucking illegal, but they were popping up what few internet well, it, sites there were. It goes back to, well, what was the thing when we were growing up? It was Faces of Death. Yeah. Those, those were the Dr. videos. Gross. So there's always been different strokes for different folks, not condoning anything, but there's a lot of fucked up stuff out there. But Quentin Tarantino said, if you've got an idea about playing with this thing and making it as a horror movie, you need to run with this shit. Right. He was on a flight somewhere that just happened to have a bunch of, you know, uppity business guys on mm-hmm. it. And he was sitting there and he's like, who would do this shit? And he's looking at these guys in front of him like, these, these assholes. assholes. <laughs> and uh, like you said, so he he decides to get to work on the movie, gets with Scott Spiegel. Tarantino's the executive producer. I think it's a Quentin Tarantino Presents movie. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. 
we talked about this a little bit in the beginning. The whole aura around this movie was, you know, shit was being talked about on the news, right? right. People are coming out crying. People are coming out throwing up. This is the most graphic thing that's ever made it into theaters. I'd actually seen it when it came out. Saw it in theaters. I think it, that was back when, where I was working, we used to do the birthday movie right. for all the guys. It was like overhyped to me. Like, and, and I'm like, this is, this is kind of boring because the whole story of the movie, to me at least, is a little clunky. You've got three American, well, two American guys and, uh, oh, what's the third guy? Uh, I think Oli, from, he's like from, from Iceland, Iceland or, something. or something. They're just bombing around Amsterdam. You know, it's, it's, it's a Euro trip. It's Euro trip. It really <laughs> is. And what's weird is it doesn't go heavy on comedy. It doesn't go heavy on character. And it, it's just like, it's just like they're, let's show them at a bar. Right. Let's show them getting high. They end up meeting the guy who's like, oh, if you want to get with some chicks, you need to go over here because right, they're right. down to fuck and they love American boys. What's his name? Alexi? Yeah. But they end up going and they hook up with the chicks and everything. But then of our three guys, we've got Paxton, Josh and Oli. Yeah. And the first one to go missing is Oli. Yeah. And it's the Asian girl. The, the whole cell phone right. thing was like, here's a picture of him with her. I think she ran off with yeah, him. Yeah, it's really, I thought this part was interesting. Like, I thought something was up more than it was. And she shows the picture and it's really kind of stiff and fake looking. So, you know, something's up. But Josh and Paxton are like, but Oli doesn't like Asian women. Yeah, that's all they're thinking about. So, I immediately thought she's in on it. And I won't say immediately thought when I was watching it for the podcast, like going back after seeing the movie. Yeah. I didn't remember necessarily who all was in on it. And I was like, she's in on it because it looks that way. Because of that, but no, she went. <laughs> yeah, and it and it's really weird because like there's other scenes in the movie, and maybe this is just me being an asshole American. The whole asshole American abroad vibe, mm. I I get that, and I'm like, I'm an asshole American. If I went and did that, I wouldn't get hot chicks like right, that. Right. This, is, this is the movie. Shit doesn't happen. There's a lot of points in the movie where it feels like something's wrong, and these guys should have vamped out. So by the time we've got Oli's gone, then real quick, Josh is gone. Yeah, Paxson goes back to the hotel after one of the nights with the girls. Right. And it's like, oh, your friend checked out. It's right, like, right. Like, the fuck you mean we checked out? One thing I want to point out about Josh, though, he's super innocent. Like, he doesn't really want to do the drugs, right? And he yeah. won't. He's like, oh, I'm looking for that special girl. And he's not participating yeah, he's, he's, in the bang of the He's just broken up with some chick. Right, right. And when they make it to the hostel, they finally coax him into having sex with these women. But Josh is so innocent at the beginning of the movie. I thought they were setting him up to be the final girl. Yeah. Right? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he goes missing as well. Paxson ends up going back and finding the two chicks. I don't remember their names at right, all, right. that they had hooked up at the other place or hooked up with at the other place. Oh, you need to go to the art exhibit. Right. I'm like, what the fuck you mean the art exhibit? And it's like, oh, we'll take you. And of course, for anybody who's seen the movie, they know what the fucking exhibit is. This is where we get to the actual place where it's the last 20 minutes of the movie. And now the slow burn, the floodgates are wide open. Right, right. Anybody who hasn't figured it out by now, this is what's happening. Motherfuckers are paying extreme amounts of money to torture and kill people right, right. however they want to. And you see a little bit of that in the movie because you see, you don't get to see what happens to Ollie, but you see, or Oli, you see his decapitated head though. Yeah. You do get to see Josh tied up in a chair a little bit before this. And the and drill, a guy in the room. Yeah, the drill guy's into drilling the into him. And he's like, just let me go. And the guy ends up cutting his Achilles tendons open. And, cut, and then, and then untying him. him. So he tries to walk away. And that's when you realize what's going on. And I think one of his toes gets cut off. But you don't even see that because you see, because Eli Roth's like the king of hard cuts. Yeah, that's off camera. You see the like hedge clippers going to cut the toe off and then it cuts to the Asian girl clipping her toenails. Yeah. But so you know like what's going on when they get to this warehouse. Like this must be the place, right? Yeah. And this is what's really cool about it is all you know by that point is like, oh my God, people are being abducted and tortured. You have no idea how big this whole thing is and why it is that way. 
because um, so Paxson ends up getting put in his room, right, where he's going to get tortured, and he does. Um, yeah, I mean, at this point, I'll leave out some details. You got to bring up the fingers, though. He does, and it it's with the chainsaw, isn't it? Yeah, I think it was two, an accident when fingers. he's the, the guy accidentally cuts off two of his fingers, but Paxson tries to hold on to these fucking fingers, yeah. and it gives you some comedic scenes during high tension. It it does because there's like one scene where uh, or one shot where he's on the body cart where they're collecting the body right. pieces from the rooms, and there's this severed hand that falls off the cart, <laughs> and then it goes under the wheel, and the cart's like ding, ding, trying to get over this <laughs> this hand that fell off, and that that was you know pretty funny, but uh, it's terrifying for what's happening to him. But he ends up in like this. Uh, like prep room, I don't know how to word this. Like a, almost like a locker room. Yeah, because he's got now the guy that comes to kill him has a gun, and somehow the chainsaw accidentally cuts him loose, right? Yeah, and he gets the gun and he murders the guy that's there to kill him. Yes, none of the guards outside think anything of it. You pay a ridiculous amount of money to kill somebody any way you want. So if you want to just fucking shoot him, then that's that's your thing, you know. So nobody's thinking about it. And he makes in that room and he meets. Oh, I wish I could remember the actor. I can't remember his name. name, but he's an asshole. So good in so many things. Yeah. He's so he's, he looks so coked out. Yeah. <laughs> he might not be. He might be acting. But, but that's where he finds this. The business card right. is in that room and like prices on the back of it. Right. And it's like, oh, Americans shit. are more. What's it? Elite hunting that. Yeah. Elite hunting. And there's a symbol on the card that you've seen pop up as a tattoo a couple of times in the movie. Oh, the that's business right. guy on the train. Yeah. That's what I say. The, I, I glossed right over that. Yeah. When they're going from Amsterdam to. Slovenia, Slovakia. Yeah. Slovak, wherever they're going, it's a yeah. Slovak country on a train. The they country they got guy. really mad at Eli Roth for using them for this movie, by the way. And, and the business guy asked them where they're going and they say, and he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. It's a great place to go to party. And you know, they're thinking about to do drugs and get laid. And he's thinking about to go torture. Human yeah. To go torture people. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, he meets that guy in the room and the guy's like, how are you going to fucking do it? Huh? How are you going to fucking do it? You got a fucking gun. You want to fucking shoot him? <laughs> yeah. He is so, and like you said, it's like he's coked out of his mind and so excited. He can't figure out what he wants to do. And does he kill him? Does Paxton kill him? I don't think he does. The guy's like, how would you do it? Would you do it slow and torture him or quick with a gun? And, and Paxton, because he's experienced this, goes quick with a gun. Yeah. He goes, yeah, yeah. I'll just fucking blow. No, no, fuck this. I'm going to do it slow. And he throws the gun in a clothes hamper. Yeah. Right. So that's how and, Paxton's and that's how, the gun. That's how Paxton ends up getting it. Basically, it turns into like a revenge movie, like yeah. a I Spit on Your Grave or Last House on the Left. Exactly. Because Paxton gets this gun, tries to escape, goes to steal a car, and he hears a girl screaming. And he goes to save her. And it's the Asian girl. Yep. And I'll let you see what happened to her in the movie. But he kind of goes on a roll and he kills some people on the way out. Oh, gets yeah. in the car. Yeah, finds there's, there's the, girls. the complete turning point where yeah. he's. <laughs> he gets stuck at a stop sign or a red light and he sees the two, yeah, girls, sees the two girls and Alexi. And, yeah. Right. And oh, I forgot. Like when the girl <laughs> drops him off at that place, she's like, you're my bitch now. I fucking love that. Oh, line. Yeah. But he fucking mows them over with the car. I don't know. I, I got really pumped watching Paxton get revenge yeah. more in this movie than I do. I like the revenge type movies, but like I really enjoyed watching them get theirs. Yeah, because what happens in this one with like I spit on your grave is a right. great example to go back to in this movie. It's not like at the beginning, there's the tragedy at the third act. There's the revenge. It's all this build up to there was immediate tragedy and we're going straight right. to just desserts. Right. Right, there. right. The girl ends up fucking offing herself because of what happens to her. Yeah. And that was another thing they made a big deal about in the press and right. people talking about the movie, but he's on the train and I, I think he's going to get away and he hears a guy talking and it's the business guy. Yep. And he figured out, I don't remember how he figured out the business guy was in on it in the movie, but he did like earlier in the movie. Yeah. He knows he's in that club. And this is where I got really fucking confused is I remembered Paxton following him into a bathroom and slipping a card under the stall. 
Yeah, the, the, guy the elite hunting card. Fucking cuts his fingers off and just murders the shit out of the guy, right? Yep. And credits roll. That's That was how I remembered it. And I'm watching the movie and the guy has a daughter with him. You know, and he's like all excited and she goes in the girl's room and he goes in the men's room. And then I think he comes out of the stall and he finds the card. Can't find his daughter. And he runs out to the train tracks and the train's leaving and packs and sitting there holding the girl. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this shit just got dark. And the credits roll. I saw that and I was like, what the fuck just happened? I don't remember this. <laughs> and that's when I realized I was watching the director's cut of the film. And that yeah. was his original ending. I actually like the theatrical ending better. Uh, the the theatrical ending is better. The uh, the director's cut ending is a little over the top. And then it really makes me wonder what the setup was going to be for the sequel. Right. Because the sequel works perfectly with the theatrical. Ending. The theatrical ending is the canonical ending in the in the sequel. But like, I don't know. I just didn't see Paxton going and murdering a kid. Unless maybe he was taking that kid to just get her away from her fucked up dad. I'll raise her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, maybe it was going that route. You don't know. Cause it just well, kind of stopped. And that would have worked too. Cause that, that's like the double edged sword of like, on the one hand, it's like, I'm going to traumatize this guy. Cause I'm taking his, his kid away. And on the other hand, I'm saving this girl right. by taking the kid away. So you don't, you, you're not mad at him. Like he's going to go kill her or some shit like that. And it's just weird. Cause everybody shit on how graphic this movie was. And like, yeah, you had like the Achilles tendon getting cut open was kind of fucked, but that's in thriller movies, right? Like, yeah. you know, that aren't even horror movies. I will say the scene with the Asian girl is a little yeah out there, but even then it wasn't that bad. And it's just like, I don't know. I, I, the, the entire situation though was so terrifying that, like I said earlier, maybe it just kind of filled in the blanks on that, but he, he loved Asian and Italian horror movies. He's always said that. Yeah. And they just go so fucking graphic and out there. He's like, I want to do that. Cause nobody does that here. And I will say he fucking got that done. He did. And it, and the American horror doesn't really get to get away with that that much. I don't know if we touched on this earlier, but a $4.8 million budget and 80 million at the box office. So once again, very little money fucking and, made bank. Well, and that right there, I think has a lot to do with it because I think you had a lot of people that weren't even into horror, weren't into this and definitely weren't into any kind of subgenre that just the buzz around the movie was have you this movie's making people throw up i gotta go see it just curiosity and then i think that took on a life of its own about how crazy this movie was. and just to give eli roth credit as a director he took a ten thousand dollars salary to make hostile just so there would be more money for the effects and stuff oh really yeah so i mean he took chump change which was k&b again yeah, it was KMB again. And I'm sure he got like royalties after the fact. Maybe oh, yeah. he didn't. I don't know. I don't know if he knew how to negotiate a contract. I, I that hope time. he did. But yeah, ten Tarantino would have told Tarantino would have Yeah, it seems like he would have <laughs> taken care of him on that. But that was in 05. And like it wasn't two years later where they made a sequel, right? Yep. Two years later, we get the sequel. And this one was really, really interesting to me. I never saw the sequel back in the day. I, had, I didn't either. I watched it for this podcast. Yeah, I had to watch it for the podcast. We have the same team together again with Tarantino, Scott Spiegel, K&B. Of course, the movie picks up with Paxton in the hospital. Right. And they're like, you know, tell us what the hell happened. And he starts telling him what happened and then realizes, is it the cop comes in or the doctor has the tattoo? There's some kind of tell that happens that lets him know that he's stuck with the same fucking people still. Well, no, no. And then he gets murdered and then he wakes up from a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. But yeah it was talk- a dream sequence. But, yeah, though, right? yeah, but I'm talking about when he was still in the hospital, there was there he was probably some- saw a tattoo. I know that he went and reported Josh meeting to a missing to a cop. Yeah. In the first one. And then that cop was you at see him the at, murder at, club. At, yeah. Yeah. So I don't maybe it was that guy, but you do have that like fucked up like nightmare scene. Yeah. He he wakes up and he's back at home with his wife or his girlfriend. I don't his girlfriend. It's, it's Jordan a- Ladd, right? Oh, OK. OK. Wasn't it, it was Karen from Cabin Fever. 
I don't know. Yeah, yeah I'm that, sure that, it was. Would, that would make perfect sense, though. Yeah, but she's in the room with them, and she, you know, why wouldn't you report this to the authorities? She's like, you don't know how far it goes, man. Everybody's yeah. fucking in on it. <laughs> and uh, fuck spoilers. I'm going to bring this up because I love this because he leaves the room and then it, it follows her. It may cut to something else. I don't know. But she walks into the damn kitchen and he's decapitated. Right. Just fucking sitting there with the cat munching on, on his fucking neck. <laughs> I want to I want to take it a step back to get there because it's so beautifully done. She wakes up in the morning and you hear a chainsaw. And I'm like, oh, Paxton's fucked. And then the camera goes outside and you see that there's a gardener trimming yeah. the hedges. And I'm like, oh, Paxton's not fucked. And then it cuts to her walking in the kitchen and he's okay. decapitated. I'm like, oh, no, he's fucked. <laughs> it was a roller coaster of emotions on that scene. There's also a... One of the better recaps that I've seen in a sequel, like yeah. to the first one, like you completely knew what happened and what was going on when you see that recap. It was a very powerful opening scene because yeah. everything that we just said almost happened as fast as we just said it. Exactly. It's very visual. Then we, we quickly go to what right out the gate looks like it's going to be a rinse and repeat with a female cast. Right. And I was so like, oh, fuck, are you kidding me? There are two things happen here. One, it for me, it was like going from Evil Dead to Evil Dead 2. Okay. It's almost the same movie, but it's like everything we learned on the first one, we're going to implement on the right. second one. It doesn't feel as clunk through the first half. And I'll get into details here in a second, but it, just just an overall. It, it definitely feels like a more professional film. Yes. And uh, you have more, uh, like, I didn't recognize anybody in the first one. No. And in the second one, I did. Yeah. <laughs> we get. So not only do we get a news, a better told story with a female cast as far as getting them to, because they end up in the same fucking place. Right. But we also get. Literally, the, same hostel and everything. Yeah. We get the story from the other point of view of these rich assholes that participate in this. Right. Because it does this montage of once the girls are, are, they're not even captured yet, they're just being followed, right? When they get their pictures and send them out. This part was beautifully done. They go to the same hostel. It's the same desk guy. Yeah. He says he needs the passports and he runs downstairs and he scans on what you don't think's that off. And then you see him like upload them to this network. And I really like this because you got to see how far this goes and and how it works. And it went to like an operator and then the operator uploaded their pictures and a price. And then you see like a bidding war happen between these rich people. Like the there's these two guys end up being a main part of the cast and like one of them is golfing. Yeah. Right? And he's just fucking bidding back and forth until he fucking gets it. Right. And it was just like, that was an extra layer to add on to the first one. And it even goes farther to show, you know, not just like the asshole on the golf course, but like guys having dinner or breakfast with the family. Right. There's the the one guy who's sitting there bidding and he keeps, he's looking over at his son sitting right. there next to him while he's doing it. And like the, the grandpa with the kid on the carousel and shit. Right. And, and I think that's really neat because it, it, it almost paints that picture of you don't, the people you think, you know, you don't know. But at any rate, we get more gore. Yeah, we really do. There's some red herrings thrown in, too, because, like, when the girls get to the hostel, there's guys there. And, like, one of them finds this guy attractive, Victor fucking Crumb from the Goblet of Fire. Right. Yeah. And I just knew he was in on it the whole time. But no, no, he's like like a guy. He could have been in the first hostel. He's there to get laid. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> yeah. There's the whole bit with them on the train. And what the hell is was it? Lorna. She gets her phone stolen. Yeah, one of the girls gets her phone stolen. Um, yeah, and it's the girl that brings it back that ends up being the one that brings them to the hostel. And her name's not Alexi, but it's something like Alexi. Yeah. It's the 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 guy that was golfing wins the bid and he calls his buddy and he's like, they got one that looks just like her. So you know that's gonna like kinda kinda fit in and you, you can tell that guy's not having a good marriage at home and he tells his wife he's got like a work trip. Yeah. And these guys end up in the same country. And I thought this was cool because they they go to like a dance or something or like a festival in the town. Yeah. And the guys are there stalking the girls and talking to them, 
which that was a whole nother layer from the first one that like just wasn't there. Yeah. Well, they've even got like the little bar things that you'll get that, that flashes when your shit's ready. And right. he's carrying his around talking to her and like holding it in, out in front of her and shit. And yeah, she's yeah. like, and oh, she's I like, guess your table's ready. Yeah. yeah. And that, like that. that basically means we're, we're about to capture these girls. Yeah. That's got a creepy scene in it because he calls her Beth and she catches it. Yeah. Right. But he's fast. He's like, I heard one of your friends say that. Yeah, yeah. But when they're there, that's when uh, Lorna, the geeky mousy girl of yeah. the group, runs off with this one guy and they're telling her not. She's like, I'm going to go on his boot. She was in like the Princess Diaries and she was uh, Randy's sister. Yes, right? in, in, Scream in Scream 3. <laughs> Is and, it 3? Okay. Yeah. No. Fuck, I don't remember. But yeah, the <laughs> fucking Randy's sister from Scream. And her kill is my favorite thing in the movie. The whole Elizabeth Bathory thing. Right. Because she's like the innocent, you think, going to be the final girl one again. Did you do you notice a trend here? Eli Roth always kills the most innocent one first. Seems to be. Even in Cabin Fever, for the most part. Like, if you're going to compare Kieran and Marty, yeah. she gets it. And then Josh gets it. I guess Ollie might have been first, but you don't see it. It's like off screen, right? Yeah. So Josh gets it. And then you have, I can't, what's her name in the movie? Lorna. Uh, Lorna. Yeah. Lorna gets it. And she gets it in the fucked up point. Yeah. That whole scene. And that's. I think that scene really solidifies torture porn. Right. Just because of how it's done and how she is so toyed with. It's not like they just slit her throat and she's bathing no. in the blood. It's just like Nick after Nick to get the blood come out. Yeah. And and the movie goes even farther because the two guys that the, the two killers that they seem to to stay focused on is uh, Todd and Stuart. You got yeah. Todd, the asshole. And then Stuart, who's kind of he seems he, like a normal, nice guy, especially when he's talking to Beth. Yeah. And it's so great. By the time we get. The girls in the rooms and get the guys in the rooms, which happens earlier in this movie because right. you already know what's going to happen. That's another thing I want to bring up is it's like it's so I was so scared it was going to be rinse and repeat and like everything that you're like, you better change this for pacing or whatnot or it's not going to work. And it does that. I like this movie so much more than the first one. I do. It, like I said, it's a it's a better, more professional film and it, yeah. it is perfectly paced, in my opinion. And you so often see a sequel to a horror movie just be shit. Yeah. We say that on this podcast all the time. Yes. And even if, I mean, John Carpenter made Halloween too, and it's not a fucking good movie, yeah. right? This was made by Eli Roth and it was a good fucking movie. It was just so self-aware of its person without, you know, having to like reference back to it all the time. Like at the festival, there's a guy that shows up and he, he tries to get the girls to leave with him. Oh yeah. And he's like, I tried to help you. Like the town knows what the fuck's yeah. going on here. And he comes back up later in the movie. He too, comes right? up later on. He's like, get away from me. Yeah, because <laughs> he knows. And the kid, we didn't even mention the kids in the first one. Okay, now the kids, I hate. Oh, really? So I, <laughs> I fucking hate the kids, man. I don't buy it. Okay, now I get, I have, I am not a traveler, all right? I don't have a passport. I do have family that has traveled. And I know the closest thing I can talk about from family that's traveled is like you go to Honduras and stuff like that and you get kids that surround you, usually trying to just sell you trinkets or something, right. but trying to get American money. So I get that. And that's how the whole thing feels at first. But they're too over the fucking top, man. I don't know. I enjoyed them. Like in the first one where there's not a whole lot of comedy other than Ollie at the beginning, you see the kids like fucking surrounding the cars and people for candy and yeah. people are like, they just want candy, but they'll beat the fuck out of you if you don't give it. And Paxton actually gives the kids a bag of candy in the first one to like assault the guys. Oh chasing yeah. Cause them. they're throwing rocks out of windows and shit. They kill one of them. Yeah. And that kind of happens again. But the kids show up again in the second one. And the guy that, you know, runs the elite hunting club. He goes to oh, the yeah. woods to the kids and he wants to know which one of them helped the girl get away. Yep. And he's like, he wants one of them. And they give him a kid and he fucking executes him in front of the other ones. Like they were hunting on the King's land. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you got to give me one of yours. Yeah. That shit was, that was brutal. Once again, it's off camera, but like that, that goes to show 
the the psyche right, of these the, people. I don't remember what happens to the other friend. Oh, you just see her. She shows up at the end with Beth, right? Yeah, because first she's wanting to go home with the one dude from the party, and she's so shit-faced drunk that she's like, no, no, you're coming to my room. The Victor Crumb guy, right? Like, I don't know his name in this movie. He's Victor Crumb from Harry Potter. Beth ends up at, her name's not Alexi, but she's the Alexi of this movie at her mansion. At at the mansion. And she sees the painting of the guy that you know runs it all, right? Because they go to the whole thing with the, uh, where they're in, like, the heated pool and all that stuff, and then she gets chased and then she saves her and they're right. all wet and everything. She's like, oh, come back here. Yeah, you know, we'll get you cleaned so I think up. she wakes up like the next day and everybody's missing. Yeah. So Beth ends up getting taken there or captured in some way. Yeah. She's our new Paxton. Yeah. She's our new Paxton. And she's with Stuart. And basically she looks like Stuart's wife. and He can't kill his wife. Yeah. But he can kill her. And Stuart goes from being like a really nice guy in the movie to a See, fucking psychopath. And, and that's what I like about the whole Todd and Stuart thing is Todd goes through this whole thing where he's like, oh, fuck, I can't do this. And Stuart's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. Yeah. yeah. And and it could, Todd is he's a little centric, not as eccentric as the coked out guy in the first one. Yeah. But he like keeps teasing the girl and he keeps unplugging the chainsaw by accident, right? Like then he moves yeah. it too far away. Well, he goes running up with the little electric circular saw, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and he gets right up to her and it comes unplugged. Or no, he has something else and it comes unplugged. And then he gets the circular saw and he's trying to no, keep no, an eye on the plug. It comes unplugged as he hits her and it jams in her hair. Well, he pulls the plug first. Okay, so he's trying to not do that. Yeah, and, and he's looking back to make sure that he's and not unplugging it. Yeah, and it gets yanked That's in her right. hair and fucks up her face, and he gets mad and he basically wants a refund. Yep. He wants a new girl. So then they have a fucking fire sale on her. Yeah. <laughs> like they're going door to door. Like this one's uh it's the Lexi girl. And uh, they're like, oh, we got a, we got a sale on this one because she's damaged and they're <laughs> bidding on her. It is so dark and fucked. Yeah. There's so much dark comedy at the end of that one. But, but we end up with what's her face basically buys her way out. Yeah. Cause they say early in the movie about how Beth's rich, her mom died and left her a bunch of money. And she basically, the way it's willed out, she gives her dad an allowance. She has so much money. That's right. But she gets unhooked somehow and gets Stuart in the chair and she yeah, starts yeah. yelling because she met the guy that runs the elite hunting club. Yes, right. Remember? Yes. And now what she does to Stuart, for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, I don't want to say what she yeah. does to Stuart. Torture porn, though. <laughs> Torture <laughs> porn. Yeah, she, she gets Stuart in the chair and she yells for the guy that runs the club to come in there. And she's like, look, I'm fucking rich. And she verifies her money somehow. And yeah, uh, she rattles off. Like, I can transfer blah, 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 this bank account. Like, she knows her shit. Yeah. And he's, he's a businessman. And he's like, well, we have rules here. Somebody has to die. So she takes care of Stuart, but you got to see how. And she ends up, she gets the tattoo, right? She gets it as a tramp stamp, though. I wish yes, they didn't do that. They make her get the tattoo. But she joins the club. She ends up, I guess, I think, she, does she kill Todd? Todd dies. I just don't remember if it's by her hand. Or I right. don't remember. But, you know, she fucking, she's a member of Elite Hunting now. <laughs> yeah. Um. One thing I, I'm, I meant to mention, especially with the next movie we're going to go into, the Italian cannibal, Hostel 2, mm-hmm. when, I think it's when they're doing the, the fire sale on right, the girl. Right. That's, uh, I'm going to butcher this, uh, Ruggiero Diodato. Okay. That's the director of Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, okay, okay. That's who played the which, Italian cannibal which in Hostel 2. Which you all fucking love that movie, which comes into play on in the next one real big. Exactly. So now we're getting into Green Inferno. 2013 huge gap there big gap like we said in the beginning uh eli roth does a whole lot more than just direct movies and there was a big gap here of him not only not directing but not directing horror he did do a segment that he directed on inglorious bastards right which he was act- also in and everything one of the grindhouse trailers yeah thanksgiving white meat dark meat all meat must be carved <laughs> love that one but uh, here here's everybody's excited that he's going to be coming back to directing horror i want to ask when did hill grove come out my son is five, and I know he was alive when me and my, I mean, he was a baby, if I remember yeah. correctly. So 
It might have been around that time. It might have been before Green Inferno. Yeah, and it it may have been. And I don't. And Green, I wasn't uh, into that, but the yeah. wife was hardcore into it. That was such a disappointment to me. Like Hemlock Grove was from a book, and Eli Roth he at least wrote and directed the pilot, but yeah. it was his show. And I saw they did a, the a big like promotional thing for Hemlock Grove before it to come out. And I'm watching this interview with him, and he's just talking about horror movie after horror movie. And I'm like, he's just so pumped, and I'm getting pumped with him. Yeah. And I don't know anything about this book, and I see vampires and fucking werewolves. And I'm like, all right, I want to see it. But then he starts talking about how he thinks Netflix is the way, like, basically the future yeah. for filmmaking. He goes, I, I've never really done a TV show, and I'm sitting down to do this, and I'm writing it out, and I'm asking him how many episodes it need to be. And they're like, how many do you want it to be? Yeah. And he's like, how long do the episodes need to be? And they're like, how long do you want them to be? Right? There's, this isn't network TV. And he really sold me on the idea of Netflix originals because he's like, I can make as many seasons as I need as long as it's making money. Yeah. I can make random numbers of episodes. Yep. I can have a 30 minute episode and an hour and a half long episode if I need it to tell the story. This is great. And so, like, I got really pumped about Eli Roth from that making of Hemlock Grove and sold on Netflix at the same time. Netflix is TV now for yeah. the most part. So I just, I kind of want to throw that in there because it's either you. right before Green Inferno or during or right after. It has to be okay. somewhere in there. Basically, you've got a group of social justice warrior kids getting led like sheep to the slaughter. It's supposed to be there's these crews coming in, clearing land in the Amazon and running off and killing the indigenous people. Right, right. I do want to say the opening, like with them making a big hippie thing on campus between the groups, it's yeah. really poorly written and acted. It's very cheesy to me. Well, the whole movie's poorly written and acted. <laughs> it goes back and forth <laughs> on the acting to me, but like that, the opening college scene was painful to watch. Yeah. But we're starting off with the lead girl, Justine, and her roommate, which I forget her name, but she's the chick that looks like a walking perpetual heroin overdose. Oh, yeah. She's got hepatitis or and, something. And her dialogue, looks. as bad as she looks, her acting and dialogue is just as bad. Their conversations at the beginning of the movie are so fucking painful to yeah. get through. The whole anything before they get to the jungle is just fucking painful and slow to watch now justine's wanting to get the the attention basically of this this guy who's leading the charge for the social justice group at the the college or whatever right so they're going to go save save these people and so they fly down there and they've got all their stuff set up to where they're putting on these jumpsuits that look like the forest workers they chain themselves to equipment they got a satellite uplink set up and they're going to stream so they don't get shot by the local the cartels yeah one thing I want to I want to point out, she goes to see her dad, and her dad is Todd from Hostel 2. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. he's a U.N. And attorney. he's a U.N., yeah. Right. I mean, she gets in that meeting, her dad's scared for her to go. He's like, do you know what the fuck's going on over there? They do the whole thing with chaining themselves up. They stop the workers. They don't get shot. They prove their point, and they're, they're getting out of there. And they're so excited. They're getting on the plane to fly away, and they're, like, looking online. And right. they're like, oh, my God, we just... CNN so many retweeted views, yeah. us. We're on the front page of Reddit. Don't forget the guy basically sacrificed Justine. Like she oh, got yeah, pulled yeah, down yeah. and she was going to get shot in the head. He's like, go ahead, fucking shoot her. And it's because he brought her for cannon fodder. He exactly. says that to her on the plane. Yep. She was going to be the pawn and she's not having it while they're all excited drinking beers. And she's like, you fucking use me. And he's like, but look at this. We're so much bigger now. This is bigger than, than all of us. And I feel like that's where her acting is better in the movie. Like the hanging out at college scenes. I don't feel like it was mm-hmm. good acting. When she was terrified of the gun in her head, I believed it. Yeah. So then, of course, the plane goes down. Yeah. While they're all celebrating how they their pixels on screens are so important. Yeah. Plane goes down. What are they? What are they still half of them wearing? The workers' jumpsuits. Right. And what happens? The cannibals 
who, of course, we don't know they're cannibals. They may have been mentioned at this point. No, I don't think it's even mentioned at it's this point. It's the indigenous people. Just the indigenous people, yeah. They see these people that they associate with the workers who have been fucking invading and destroying their land. So I what happens even, next? I didn't even put two and two together that they looked like the workers. I was just thinking they were hungry. <laughs> like, oh, pizza's here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, so they get them. They put them in a cage. Does the... The, I can't remember his character's name. Does he ever even make it into the cage? Do they just take him straight over to the ceremonial table? I think he made it in the cage. Okay. The cage scene, there's some interesting character dynamics within the cage that the movie was severely lacking. Yeah. There's a lot of Scooby-Doo references. Yeah. Well, and you also had, there's the two girls, the the lesbian relationship that seems like is going to spark during all mm. this because the one girl's super fucking scared and the other girl's like, I'll take one care of One of the you. girls, Kira, she... She's actually the douchebag guy's girlfriend. Remember? Yeah. 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 And she's just as much of a bitch as he is a dick. But there's some surprises in that scene. Like one of the characters takes their own life and it's so sudden. But see, I got problems with that because that's the same girl who takes shit in the corner, right? Was it? I wasn't sure because a couple of them look alike. I was going to, I was trying to, I wanted to kind of leave that part out just because it's like when it happened to me, I was like, oh, fuck. Like I did not see it coming here's, at all. Here's what I have to say for people who have seen the movie. The, uh, what I like to call the virgin test mm-hmm. when the witch doctor ladies yeah. poke in the three girls to see which one she gets blood from. The tone of that right there. Like if the whole, if all the bad parts of the movie or heightened parts of the movies could have lived within that space, it would have been so much better. It's so fractured, like the stuff that happens in the cage between the masturbation, the shit and the suicide. They don't come out of nowhere like, oh, my God. And they there's things that could have been built up so much better on those. And they're all three back to back to back. Problem with this movie compared to the other Eli Roth movies. He does swap tone in his movies and it generally works. Yeah. This one just literally felt like all over the place. This is some guy's first movie. Yeah. Honestly, because like. That part was, so like you said, if the whole movie was that tone, it would have been great, I think. And it was that tone in earlier parts of the movie. And then you have the girl, like, I mean, I, f- I feel like I was watching a Kevin Smith movie where they're fucking shitting out of the bars. I can understand like she has diarrhea and she's getting sick. Yeah. They, you know, they had like the fucking fart and spraying noises going. And yeah, everybody over gagging. Like, am I supposed to be laughing at this? Because I don't feel like that's this kind of movie. I wasn't making fun of the, the shitting scene in my head internally until the noises kicked in. Like, yeah. It was completely fine. And the one guy's like, oh, oh, if you're in a moment, you, you know, you got to relieve yourself. And he's jerking off. It's really dumb. I wish I could remember the asshole guy's name, but I hated his character that much that I yeah. didn't even feel like taking the time to learn it. <laughs> but they come up with some pretty good ideas to get out of the cage and he won't fucking have any part of it. Well, he's like, your Scooby-Doo gang can do this and that, you know. And Yeah, he's going to wait it out because and the thing is, he doesn't have the balls to do anything. I think he makes some dumb comment about how, like, the construction crew would be breaking ground. And pushing in on this village. Yeah, yeah. Any, any day yeah, now. Yeah, because like, like, I'm just going to wait it out. Basically, they're, they're trying to escape. They have a couple attempts. Some of them get out at some point. Yeah. They're all getting captured and cooked and eaten. Yep. And there's like a witch doctor lady. And you, like you refer to the virgin test. Justine is the one that's bleeding when he pokes her or when she pokes her. Yeah. And they end up like doing all this crazy full body makeup on her, right? Like she's either. I wasn't sure at this point if she was going to be like their god or like the pr- supreme sacrifice. You know what I mean? Cause they were, they were treating all, her differently than all, the other bodies. All I got out of it based on the test, the, the thing in college at the beginning of the movie is they're getting ready to have a big ceremony where they do the female genital mutilation. They're, yeah. That, that's, that's a maybe. Yeah. Uh, but there's a kid that Justine kind of befriends throughout the movie. Yeah, one with of the, the natives with a little whistle. Yeah. Cause she's got a whistle. It's like a flute and she plays songs. And I mean, it's not a whole lot. To say this, but there's a lot of fucking cannibalism. The movie actually, 
Josh made fun of me, called me a sissy because I texted him. <laughs> the movie actually bothered me stomach-wise to watch on some of it. Yeah. Because uh, it was pretty realistic and crazy. KMB's work, once again, is great. Cannibalism bothers me if it's done right. I guess because it's so real. It yeah. could happen. But, like, there's movies like Raw and, and stuff like that that, like, didn't even phase me. But this movie fucked me up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just say it. I was uncomfortable watching it. But, you know, it's it's really, it's one of those Eli Roth, this is a shock factor movie. Let's watch a bunch of people just get fucking disemboweled and eaten. Yeah. Justine gets out. I mean, I'm just going to say it. She yeah. gets out. She's your final girl for the most part. Yeah. She ends up running up on the the workers, and she, but she's dressed up. I immediately was thinking in my head, this is another Night of the Living Dead. She's about to get fucking Yeah, they're going to shoot her. Because part of how she escapes is the tribe is fighting the construction workers, and they're mowing them down with machine guns. Yeah, they're, they're battling in, it out. And she has so many cell phones that she found on a court. Cell phone. Cell phone. Cell phone. You know, because she's like, if I got a phone, they know that I'm not or one of them. Phono, filmo, something like that. Yeah, yeah. She's acting like she's filming again. Yeah. And they take her, and then she starts yelling, you in, you in. Yo. You know? And I was I actually liked this part of the movie. And she gets away, and I don't know, it goes downhill from, <laughs> to yeah. me from there. I don't want to spoil it, but she basically protects the indigenous people. There's yeah. some more to it that I don't want to spoil, but you're like, it's just so out of place when she's like, oh, no, no, they didn't hurt any of us. You know, and you're like, what the fuck? You yeah. know, after and all that, that happened. There's so much in that movie that it's it's such a great idea with going with the cannibal angle, what the kids are doing and what they think they're doing, what's going to happen to them, how dark and putting you in that zone for how terrifying that movie should be. Right. And every chance it has to get and stay terrifying, it misses. Right. That's my problem with the movie. Not a fan. I mean, this is the first one on the list that I, I won't watch again. No. You know, if, if somebody's like, oh, I've never seen it. Is it as fucked up as they say? Okay, I'll put it on yeah. for him. Never going to watch it again. Though. I was not very entertained by it. But Eli Roth was back. He got to use his influences of foreign graphic gory movies and make one. He had his wife in it. I don't know yep. if it was his wife yet, but I mean, she ended up being his wife. Yeah. She pops up in his next movie, Knock Knock, which was two years later. Right. So yep. he didn't take a huge gap again. He co-wrote the movie with uh, with the same guy from um, Green Inferno. What was his name? Guillermo. What it? I don't know how to say his last name. <laughs> Amoedo? Is that how you say it? Yeah. We're going to go with that. I guess, man. If we butchered your name, man, I'm sorry. but <laughs> We'll just call him Guillermo. The movie was made. It was a $2 million budget, so it's actually kind of low. But I don't even know if it... I guess it made it back, but barely. This movie just bombed. It's like Clerks, man. It's a, it's a movie in a house. <laughs> I want to know how the movie cost $2 million and had Keanu Reeves in it. Keanu Reeves. That's, that's why I got <laughs> I'm just saying, like, that had to be almost the entire budget, though, I know, right? right? <laughs> um, Knock Knock is a remake of a 1977 movie called Death Game. Okay. Yeah. I remember seeing it once in the 90s. I don't remember it really well, but two girls come in on an unsuspecting guy and, and the torture shit happens, right? One of the girls, Colleen Camp, actually, both the girls and the writer of the movie had something to do with this movie. Like, okay. they're all credited on it. Colleen Camp's actually in the movie. She's one of the girls from the original one. She's the neighbor or masseuse or whatever that shows up later in the movie. Okay. You might recognize her from that movie Clue with Tim Curry. She's the French maid with the big boobs. Uh. <laughs> Vivian or whatever I think uh. her name is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This movie it had Justine and Kara and Jonah in it. Like, they were yep. they were all in it because um, Kara the, was the girlfriend, the asshole's girlfriend in Green Inferno. She plays Keanu Reeves' wife. She's an artist. Jonah is like her, I don't know, art dealer or personal assistant or something. Yeah. And, of course... The guy um, that shouldn't have had asthma. Right. <laughs> what is up with Eli Roth and like the asthmatics, like fucking being like super nerdy and like if they get upset, they need their inhaler. I find this offensive. Okay. <laughs> Are you triggered right now? I'm triggered right now. But knock, knock. Uh, I want to talk about the first time I saw the movie and then do a summary of it. But I was actually excited to see it 
because I didn't know about Green Inferno yet. I liked some of his past work. I had seen him on some shows talking about horror at this point, Eli Roth. Yeah. And I was like, okay, he's got a new movie coming out. I like Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves is not like this phenomenal actor, but I feel like he's phenomenal in the roles he takes generally. Right. Yeah. So Keanu Reeves is in it. The previews, it looked like a fucking slasher movie to me. Like I was sold. Like there's these two girls stalk them, go in murdering people. That's what I'm thinking. Seeing it miss the movie at theater somehow. When I was looking at the box office numbers, I feel like this movie might not even really been in theaters. <laughs> I'm not certain. The numbers looked a little off to me, yeah. but I didn't get to see it in theaters. Saw it at my buddy David's house for a horror movie night. Okay. And we're kind of excited going in and Keanu Reeves acting is so fucking bad in the movie. And I don't mean like the literal acting. He's using this voice and this tone and he's articulating in a way that just so out of place and he can't do it. Yeah. And it's so out of place that I feel like this was like a directorial decision. Kelly like John Carpenter getting Kurt Russell to do a shitty John Wayne impersonation for all of Big Trouble yeah. in Little China. And it worked in that movie, but it didn't work in this. And he has so many fucking terrible lines. They're dad jokes, if you think about it. Yeah. Dad joke, you know, free fucking pizza, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Like he's got all these That's terrible, terrible lines. Movie. I know, but um, I feel like he does the hanging out scenes pretty well. He actually acts very well in yeah. those. But he doesn't do the panicking and freaking out scenes at all. No. And that's the majority of his role in this movie. But long story short, he's asleep in bed. Keanu Reeves, he wakes up. He's got two kids. His wife's there. It's his, it, I thought it was a birthday because they bring in a cake. He's like, sprinkles. You know, so yeah. bad. But you find out it's Father's Day. Yeah. And they're going on a Father's Day beach trip. You can tell by his house. It's fuck. He's rich. Very rich. He's an architect and he has to finish a project. Yep. And you can see that his wife is an artist and she has an exhibit coming up. And that's where Jonah shows up from Green Inferno, and he's supposed to come pick the artwork up later in the weekend. Keanu Reeves, you know, has, I'm, I'm the monster, I'm the daddy monster, chasing the kids and playing with them. So basically, it's Father's Day weekend, like I said, and the wife and kids are going to, like, the beach or something, and he's yeah. going to work for a day or two and then go meet them there, right? And he stays home, and he's working, you see him smoking a little pot, right, getting laid back, and, and then the knock-knock happens. Vivian's okay. got some good shit. yeah. yeah. <laughs> So the the knock knock happens on the door and that actually happens early, right? Yeah. Which thank God because I went in rewatching this for the podcast, not happy because I hated this movie the first time I saw it. I did like it better the second time. I think it's kind of I went in with certain expectations, they weren't met and it ruined it for me. Then I went in with no expectations <laughs> and I appreciate it. But you see these two gorgeous women on the doorstep. It's pouring rain and it's Lorenza is a fucking Eli Roth's wife again. Yeah. And her name's Genesis in the movie and a girl named Belle and it's Anna D. Armas. She's in, she was like in the new Blade Runner movie and a bunch of other shit, but they're both yeah, yeah, by the rain. This, this was her first big American right. role. And basically they, they say that they rode a taxi to go to a party and he dropped us off and left. And this obviously in a party that he's, they say the address and he's like, Oh, that's not this address. Yeah. And she mixed up the street names over oh, at the wrong spot. And he's like, come in, we'll get an Uber. Right. So they come in the house, they're, they're wet and, and stuff like that. And they're trying to warm up. I think he gets them some towels and stuff and he gets them an iPad so they can look up the address for the party. And that's when they figure out they made the street error. And he's like, I'll order you an Uber and it's going to be 45 minutes. Right. Yeah. Cause I'm assuming they're in like this rich people part of town and it's storming and the girls are hanging out with them. And I remembered the movie. I remember them just like hitting on him. And he just went straight to fucking him for some reason, I guess. Cause I was just not enjoying the movie. That oh much. no, he resists for a while. He's a strong-willed man because they are just <laughs> so hitting on him. Yeah. Swapping places where he's sitting. He's deflecting. He keeps looking at the phone to see how far away the driver yeah, is. Yeah, because like, he's like, I got to get these girls out of here. <laughs> and then somewhere in there, they're like, can we throw our clothes in the dryer? 
right? And he yeah. goes and gets some robes, and they find out that he's a DJ, and he does some cheesy DJing shit, right? And uh, somehow, I don't. they end up in the bathroom. I think the Uber car shows up, and he goes to get their clothes out of the dryer, and they're giggling in the bathroom. And he goes in there because they won't come out, and he's like, oh, I'm not looking. And then they just... They're butt ass naked and they get on and they're grabbing. Yeah, because they're like in the shower. Yeah, yeah, and won't come out. And they're like, "This is your dream, right?" And he's like, "No, I can't do this." And he starts to make it out with them. And you have like a montage of sex scenes, which I actually saw an interview with Keanu Reeves on one of the late night talk shows, and he's pretty funny about the whole thing, right? Like, cause he he's a pretty funny guy when oh, yeah. you see him. And they're like, "So how was it? You know, she's beautiful." How how is it having sex with her while her husband's filming the movie, right? Yeah. And he's talking about how he like, you know, it's it's all very professional and this and this and that. And he made some funny line about it and he like got embarrassed after he said it. But you know, he's oh, really? like yeah, he was all into it. It was very professional. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like, you know, so he had a good time, obviously, making that scene, I'm sure. Yeah. But he goes to sleep and he wakes up the next day and he's in the bed alone. You don't know if they're gone or not, right? Yeah. And he goes to the house and the girls are in the kitchen and there's like fucking food all over the walls and there's dishes everywhere. And yeah. This is, this is like that chick you bring home from the bar for a one night stand and you wake up and you're like, yeah, she's gone. And then you go into the kitchen and you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but they're acting crazy. And there's some parallels between this and the opening scene. I feel like they're acting like children mm -hmm. and he turns into the daddy monster. Yep. And he gets really fucking mad and he's trying to kick him out of the house and he's like, I'll call the police. And they're like, yeah, but. She's not even 18 yet, pointing at Belle yeah. and, and this and this and that. So then he's like, there's no fucking way. And he starts thinking about it. And he's like, well, maybe. Is your family going to love a pedophile? Yeah. So somehow he ends up, does he assault one of them at this part of the movie? Oh, when he when he get, when he get lo finally loses it and has her up against the wall? Yeah, I think that ha it happens more than once in the movie. But I think he yeah. loses it and starts choking one of them because there's so yeah. much on him. And you can see a look of fear in Genesis' eyes because I think it's I think it's Belle getting choked, right? And she like, gets a pot or something to hit him. And he realizes what he's doing. He stops. But anyways, it, it, they start getting very angry at each other. He talks them into leaving, and he, he drives them home and drops them off at somebody's house, right? Yeah. Then he goes back, and he's trying to finish his work and clean up, because I think they drew on his wife's statue and shit. Yeah, he's cleaning cleaning that off. and, and Cleaning I, the kitchen, finishing his project, talking to his wife and kids on FaceTime, like, I think I'm going to get to go. And then they show back up at the fucking house again. Yep. And that's when he thought, the first time at least, I thought it was going to go full on slasher disappointing <laughs> the girls are fucking psychotic in the movie i think they were both fantastic actresses in it oh yeah they they both played crazy friggin great and it's really neat because it's like you said at first it goes from oh it's these two dumb girls at the door you know it's like oh we made a mistake and then by the next morning it's like oh my god they're two dumb girls right, right. and then it turns into oh my god they are full-blown crazy yeah, yeah and i would say this is lorenza Izzo's best acting to date that i had seen i haven't seen any of her foreign yeah. films right but she's even crazy in it but they knock him out and they tie him up and like they're playing like a game show with them like you know how long does a pedophile get in jail <laughs> yeah and they got the headphones on him and they're gonna like blow out his eardrums yeah with, yeah with shitty dj music or something and they're you know trying to get him to admit and answer a bunch of shit but fucking jonah shows up I don't remember his name in this movie, but he's, he's showing it to me from Green Inferno. Yeah. But he shows up and they're acting like the fucking cousins or nieces or something. He's like, I'm fucking street girl. I know you're full of shit. You a hoe. He's yeah. Something like that. But they end up, they, he dies. Like, uh, I, it seems kind of accidental. Yeah. They figure out that he's got asthma and he has an inhaler and they get his inhaler away from him. Oh, there we go again. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, they make him have an asthma attack and he falls and cracks his head open and you can't really tell if it's an accident because they haven't really done anything violent up to this point. No. But they have no problem rolling his body up in carpet, throwing it in a van, and they're like, oh, blah, 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 is going to have a hard time with this one. Like, they say that. You're like, oh, shit. Yeah. So, but, I mean, long story short, they 
subject the guy to a bunch of stuff. I, I remember he ends up tied up in a bed and Belle comes in wearing his daughter's panties and schoolgirl outfit with freckles drawn on and starts having sex with them when they're filming it. Yeah. That's, that shit's That's really weird. really, really fucked up. And they do like, and it, what's really weird is they do when, when they do the whole, the sex thing the first time, if I remember right, it's intercut with like pictures of the kids and the yeah. wife. And then you do this 180 of this scene and they do more of it. And it goes from like willing participant to you brought this on yourself. Right. But just, you know, so they, they just keep doing this and this and admit you're a pedophile and blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. and you're going to tell your wife and it just kind of, it drags on a bit. I say that with the movie's not that long, but it no. just kind of feels like it drags on. And I mean, I don't want to spoil the end. The end's pretty good. And it's a pretty recent yeah. movie. You basically kind of figure out that they go door to door because Bell says, you know, I thought you were a good one or something. Yeah. They make several references that he's not. This isn't the first time they've done this. Yeah. yeah. So they, they apparently do this and they bust the guy out if they're not faithful, which is kind of neat in one idea. But in the other way, like he told them to fuck off for half an hour straight. Like yeah. he should have passed the test, but they just, I mean, what will they have stayed a week if he let them? Yeah. I don't know. And that's, and that's the thing that bugs me the most about this movie is we go from my favorite scenes. Like, it was free pizza. When they go and up. It's like, I made a mistake. I'm a good, I'm a good man. I love my family and all this. It goes from, he made a mistake, but he fucked up a mistake or not. If he loves his family, he's the one who made the decision. He fucked right. up. And then I'm supposed to feel sorry for him for the next hour and some odd minutes. And I don't, I can't agree with that. I don't, once he makes that decision, right. I don't care for the rest of the movie. Yeah. It's fucking not, not Keanu Reeves best movie though. <laughs> I mean, he might've even been the weaker part of this movie. <laughs> Maybe. Cause you're right. He's he, he acts odd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the next movie that was made by Eli Roth just fucking threw me through a loop, right? Like house with a clock in its wall, especially going from the one we were just talking about right. straight into this Came out 2018 and it's a fucking kids movie. Like yeah. I saw the trailers and I'm like, this looks like goosebumps or something. This is a fucking kids movie. And I didn't get to see it in theaters, but my son who's five now, he loves to watch like PG kid horror movies with me and like Scooby-Doo cartoons. And I promise I didn't do this to him. He just naturally got into scary stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, we, and he saw the trailer for it and he wanted to see it. I didn't take him to theaters because I kind of wanted to screen it, even though I was exposed to stuff at like a young age. I'm not doing it to him. Right. So, <laughs> so I got the movie and I watched a little bit and I was like, okay, I think he can watch this. And I watched it with my son and he loved it. And there's parts that generally creeped my son out. Right. Yeah. So I was so excited. I rewatch every movie, no matter how many times I've seen it for the podcast. And I was like, I'm going to watch this one with my son. Right. So he did the research with me. We actually watched it yesterday, but the movie is directed by Eli Roth. He did not write this one at all. No. It's from a novel by John Belairs, I think is his name. Right. Yeah. And I think it's of the same name. And Eric Kripke did the screenplay and Eric Kripke, you know, if the name sounds familiar to you, he's the guy that created fucking supernatural. Kripke or Kripke or my, if I watch too be much Kripke. Big Bang Theory. It might be Kripke. Um, but, um, <laughs> If I butchered your name, sorry, but he fucking started Supernatural and he ran that show for the first five seasons. Yeah. Uh, he did the Boogeyman movie. Right? Oh, really? But, okay. And he did some other shows and stuff, but he generally makes good stuff. And then Eli Roth's directing it and you see Jack Black in the trailer. You see Kate Blanchett in it, right? And you're like, okay, these are big actors. Yeah. Basically the movie, I don't want to ruin this one because it is kind of a fun watch. But yeah, and it's very, very new. It's very new, yeah. So Jack Black writes a letter to his nephew who just had some tragedy and his parents die. And he's like, you can come live with me. Here's two silver coins and a, and a ticket, right? And it's in the 50s, right? So the nephew shows up and he's kind of like a weird kid. He wears goggles for Captain Midnight because he loves the show. Yeah, he's steampunky. 
Right, right. And and Jack Black's in like a fucking kimono and stuff like that. And he's talking to him about poker night. And you can tell he's not going to be a good father. Right? Yeah. Takes the kid back to this mansion. And it is a creepy looking haunted mansion thing. And yeah. the neighbor comes out. It's Colleen Camp again. Right. Like she shows up. Are you wearing a robe? It's like, it's a kimono, you know? And, and. <laughs> You get in the house and, and visually it's very cool. And I mean, it almost looks like a Disney theme park haunted house kind of thing, right? Like yeah, there's it's the stained crazy glass Victorian. windows moving and like furniture moving and the kid's not catching all this. Yeah. But what you basically find out is that Jack Black's a warlock. Kate Blanchett's a witch. Okay. Um, there used to be another guy that, and she's the neighbor. She's the next door neighbor. Kyle McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Yeah. He was in like Dune and stuff like that. Yeah. He was a former roommate of Jack Black and he was like a magician also, like a traveling magician and they use magic and you basically find out he went to World War he was in World War Two and saw some shit, came back weird, right? Yeah. Tried to do a ritual spell type thing, sacrificing his wife, and it went bad and he said something about do you hear the ticking? Right. And and long story short, the kid finds out about magic, wants to be trained as a warlock by Jack Black. Because Jack Black says you can be taught, you know, this ability. He goes to school, you know, he meets a friend that's kind of like, he seems like he'd be the football bully jock kid for that yeah. young age range. Yeah. And the kid befriends him a little bit, but it's just because his arm's, his broken, arm's broke. He can't, he can't play, play with football, his friends. Right? Yeah. So he befriends him for a little bit and the kid starts learning some parlor tricks and, and it's a fun kids movie. Like the fucking recliners alive and shit. It's like that, the family dog. Like, yeah. And it's Jack like Black's just super weird in the movie. The Pee-wee's kid's plans. odd. The jock kid stops being his friend when he gets the cast off his arm but then they're still hanging out a little bit he's talking to him at school and he starts telling him that he knows magic and he wants to show because he wants this guy to be his friend yeah and he takes him back and there's a book there's only one rule jack black has because he tells him like you can eat cookies for dinner any time of day you can do whatever you want you don't touch this book you don't touch this fucking book <laughs> <laughs> you don't know if the necronomicon's in there or what right so what's the kid do he gets the book out to show his friend it has blood magic in it and there's a ritual to bring somebody back from the dead. Yep. Well, earlier in the movie, you see his mom talking to him in dreams. Ends up not really being dreams. It ends up, it's Lorenzo Izzo again. Again. Playing his mom. And, um, but they go to a cemetery and I think there's like a pet grave, right? Like he's doing the spell, like he's testing it. And the kid's wanting to see if I can bring back the dead. They're saying, well, I can bring my parents back. Exactly. Well, um, the bad guy, fucking Isaac, which was like, I said, it was Kyle McLaughlin or whatever. He, his grave is right there. So he does the ritual and it's blood magic. Right. And you, if you see a movie and you see blood magic, it's fucked. Right. Yeah. So he does the blood magic. They, the kids making fun of him. It doesn't work. And the, the grave moves and like a zombie corpse comes out. Right. Yeah. So he's resurrected Isaac at this point. Oops. He doesn't want to. Yeah. He doesn't want to tell Florence, which is Kate Blanchett or Jonathan, which is, which is Jack Black, like what he's doing because they're all bonding so well. Yeah. And they know the guy's back. They just don't know how. And they're trying to protect the house. And and basically, long story short, there's a there's a doomsday clock in the house. And you yeah. can hear the ticking and they can't find it. And they don't know what it does. Yeah, they, they stop it. Yeah, they, they do a bit about it throughout the movie of where they don't know what it is, but they know it is. Right, right. And they use some loopholes and magic to find it and track it down. Um, And it's I feel like all this part's really well done on the plot and, and including the kid. I mean, you just have to check the movie out. But it was just so strange to see. Eli Roth make a kids movie and this movie, I think it's an Amblin pictures. Steven Spielberg would be the producer and it was his biggest budget movie, right? Like $42 million to make it and it made 131. Yeah. Right? Big, biggest budget and highest grossing. I mean, it was really outside of his comfort zone. I feel like. Yeah. And it's definitely his most professional feeling movie. Yeah. And that's, what's really, really cool about it is, you know, we've gone through, especially coming off of green Inferno for what I said, like, you know, everything's clunky. Like, why is this guy, you know, the direction of this movie's terrible. 
And then you turn around and you give him a bunch of money, great actors to work with, a little outside of the comfort zone as far as it being more of a kid's movie. And the movie is directed and put together very well. I want to point out, he gave up the writing and production role. He normally is that as well as the director. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe it, it let him laser focus on doing this job. And I've seen some behind the scenes. He looks like a good director and like very professional when he's making this movie. But I had, I'm sure a lot of you might have this question. How the fuck did Eli Roth end up making a kid's movie? Yeah. And I decided to look that up and it was very interesting and very personal to me. Actually, he wanted to make a horror movie for kids to bridge children into horror. And like he has friends that are growing oh, he up. Want, he wants to set up future fans. Is yeah. What he's doing. He has friends that have kids that are young. There's nothing for him to watch. And he started talking about, I saw an interview, the, the PG movies that he watched when he was a kid. Gremlins, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Poltergeist. Yeah. You know, like all this shit that was creepy and scary and, and Goonies and things like that. And it like just gets you into that genre. And he thought that it's like a void right now. That market, the market might not be there, but there was no supply. Yeah. Right? So I thought that was very interesting. He also said in an interview that he had ran out of body parts to chop up, right? That's so he funny. had to do something different. <laughs> so, you know, it's that dark humor. Yeah. But he made a kid's movie to get children into horror. And then here I am, right? I'm, I'm 36. I have a five-year-old son, a soon-to-be four-year-old daughter, and another one on the way now. <laughs> and I've watched Monster Squad and Gremlins and shit with my son, and he loves them. And, you know, the scary scenes will cover it up. But he fucking loves this movie. Yeah. Like, even Goosebumps, he doesn't think scary. This movie kind of like was borderline. Like I watched it with them and, and the movie has some cheesy CGI in it at some points. I almost yeah. like it's supposed to be goofy right there. Like the baby scene, you know what I'm talking about, right? But there's mm. a lot of practical effects, like the, the room full of mannequins that are alive. Yeah. Those are fucking all animatronics. Okay. So like that, but like my son's like, Hey daddy, this part's coming up. I got to cover my eyes. <laughs> and, and, and he was scared in a fun way. Not yeah. like, in a, he's never had nightmares. Not trying it. and running out he of He enjoyed room. it. So. I appreciated having the movie to watch with my son. And that was actually his goal in making it. And when you see the production of this movie and who's all on it, you're like, oh, he sold out. And then you hear why he made it. You know, like, he didn't sell out. His vision was get kids a bridge movie in a horror. And it fucking worked. Yeah. Like he succeeded at it. Well, and, and, to, and to take a quick step back, going back to Knock Knock, Knock Knock, you see a well-made movie as far as cinematography, oh, pacing, yeah. shots, direction. Yeah, the, the movie was actually from made Keanu very Reeves. well. It doesn't have a lot of replay value. It's not great, yeah. but it, it's a very professionally made movie. And then you come into this and you see what he can do at the helm with, you know, big time people, big time money and, you know, highest grossing movie doing exactly what he wanted to do with the movie as far as his involvement with it and what he wanted to bring in, what he felt was missing and got both. Right. So that's really, really neat. And that's what makes me wonder where we're going to go you know, from here. And it sounds really weird that we're taught. We go from, you know, cabin fever to hostel to green inferno to a kid's movie, but it's still a horror movie just for kids. I mean, uh, I guess that's speaks volumes for him as a director. I mean, that's, we're here to talk about him as a director, right? Exactly. Like he can go all over the place and it still is Eli Roth. No. You know what I mean? Like he can do this and he can do that. He definitely cares about the genre, right? You can see that with Eli Roth's history of horror, yeah. his TV show. Like this guy, he knows everybody. He knows the business. He loves making it, right? Like, yeah, he's like I don't feel like he's there for the money. I'm sure he likes making the money. No, but. well, well, read or watch any interview uh, of this guy and you get his headspace. One of the things that I saw in an interview that really, really stood out to me was he said, somebody's asking him, you know, your, your films aren't critically acclaimed. How do you feel about that? And he's like, I don't give two shits. 
It's like, all I care about is the test of time. Right. If kids are watching my movies years from now, then I've done what I was supposed to do. Right. And to be honest, he has always been talked about a lot. It might be for making depraved fucked up movies, but his name has never really disappeared. <laughs> um, the other thing that I, wanna, I wanted to say about him was, okay, like talent. So you and me can relate to this from a musician angle. You've got somebody that just has it or somebody that's in the right place, right time, and they get famous, whatever. Right. And then you've got, or, the, or they're really, really good at what they do and they become studio musicians, stuff like that. Right. And then you've got other people that just want to play and they fucking fight and grind it out to learn and play. That's how I feel like he is, that he's still fighting and grinding it out and looking for his footing in some spaces. So you're saying he's like the punk rock director? (laughs) To a certain... No, that's fucking Lloyd Kaufman. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that'd be fun to cover, wouldn't it? Yeah. But you're talking about him hitting his groove. He really has, like, you can see a progression movie to movie. Like, he... I mean, the kids maybe we're talking about, I mean, it is a fucking perfectly put together movie. Yeah. Even if you don't like it, it's a good, Steven Spielberg signed on to make this movie with him. It's a fucking good movie, right? Yeah. And that's where I'm going is I really think his best work we're haven't seen yet. Right. I'm Be curious it. to see what he's going to do. Yeah. It's like he, now this is a really interesting time as far as your, his career goes. Cause this is a weird door opening. I would be interested to go from here. What if he made something like a vampire movie or werewolf movie? What if he made the original hard R version of Goonies? (laughs) (laughs) See, I think he would be perfect to make the original hard R version of Goonies. But you know what I'm saying? Though, like instead of doing his like, I'm going to make like a really shock value torture porn movie or I don't know. He made a kid's movie. So the fact that he did that, I would like to see him with other people's scripts in other subgenres of horror because I mean, he hasn't done them like he did a cabin movie. But for the most part, he's done his own thing. He hasn't done a zombie movie or a slasher movie or a monster movie. There's a lot of places to go still. And I'd go, I'd get the tickets and go see it. I mean, (laughs) I guess that about wraps it up though. For our first director episode, I will say we ran long as fuck on this one. Uh Oh, we We didn't say long. You said long as fuck. I'm worried. It's it's longer than slashers (laughs) Four. Oh fuck. (laughs) And I got so much out of that too. We had talked about if this was going to be two episodes or not, but we haven't done just a director. So we didn't know how much we were going to talk about the movie versus how much we were going to talk about the person. And this was kind of trial and error force. I could split it in two. It's long enough. Oh Jesus. But, uh, I think we're just going to let it ride. Sorry. You guys got a long one. I hope it was informative at least. I think it's funny that we picked a director that both of us originally weren't that enthused to no. watch. I was happy in the end. Like, I'm glad I went back and watched all his movies. Yeah, I, li- I like him. He needs to just keep getting better. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we said we had a, a rotation or cycle we wanted to do. So we did slashers as a category or subgenre. Yep. We did the Evil Dead trilogy as a franchise. Because we really wanted to. Yeah, yeah. We did Eli Roth as a director. So now we got to start the rotation over. We got to go back into a category or subgenre. Next week, we'll be talking about loot guru, lupines, lycanthropes, werewolves, baby. I'm feeling itchy. <laughs> We're going to keep this a little bit more toned down than slashers. It's not going to be 35 movies. No. It's going to be six. I picked three and Josh picked three. At it, random. It's not a history thing. Maybe there will be a werewolves two down the road. But we picked six movies. We watched them and we're going to sit down and talk to you about them. So make sure you tune in next week. The episode will be up on Friday in the morning again. Make sure you keep plugging the podcast. Keep sending us comments on our Gmail, SBIS Podcast. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at SBIS Podcast. There's not a lot up on those yet, but as people start joining, we're going to start using them more. And thanks for listening, guys. What was I supposed to do? It was free pizza! Free pizza!
made fucking pizza! And you shows up at my fucking door! What am I supposed to do? 